Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Thanks very much, already, and it's uh, right now. It's otherwise we're talking women with me, Nancy Richards, also with Kim, uh, with Hazel Michaelzeni and Des Skippers. Well, we, as I say, we all eyes and ears are pretty much on uh, the National Arts Festival in Grahamstown, which hopefully is doing its best to get to as many people as possible. Um, but we thought that maybe it was time to have a little bit of the Eastern Cape. Uh, it's certainly getting its, a chunk of the limelight right now. But for that reason, we thought we'd take a look at what else is going on down there. So we have a number of women we're going to be talking to, not necessarily in this order. We're going to be hearing from uh, Pamela Temakwe. She is the founder and editor of the Eastern Cape Women's Magazine, focusing very much on women's achievements in that part of the world. We'll also be talking to a woman who's been honoured for the huge difference that she's made in the lives of so many people in the region. She's Dr. Carol Hoffmeyer. She is the founder of the Kais Karma Trust, who, as you will probably know, do all sorts of things, but we'll find out a little bit more in a minute. We'll also be chatting to the owner of Adele Mohair, it's a local production company, and we'll hear about the very creative ways in which they've been teaching children with disabilities at the Bukohambe School in East London. So that's what we've got lined up, and if at any stage you'd like to join in, you'd be most welcome. You can give us a call on 0892102010, I guess we'd especially like to hear from you. If you come from that part of the world, maybe you can tell us what what the festival has meant to you uh, or, or hasn't meant to you. And if you'd like to share with us uh, any stories that you know about the women that we're going to talk to, we'd be really pleased to get your input, as always. And don't forget, you're always welcome to pop us emails or messages on our Facebook page. It's otherwise at safm.co.za. Or you can send us a, a message on otherwise on SAFM on our Facebook page. We have no what's news today, simply because we're going to give more space to the guests that we have got lined up. So don't forget, if you'd like to share, 0892102010. But right now, it's otherwise. Stay with us. Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. I'm going to start off the show today with a woman who has, uh, has been recognised. She's been much awarded and justifiably so. She's Dr. Carol Hoffman. She's the founder of the Kais Karma Trust. Recently, once again, honoured by Rhodes University to acknowledge the work she's done with so many citizens through the Trust. Probably she's best known through the work of the Kais Karma Art Project, in turn best known for its breathtaking embroidery and for the famous Kais Karma Tapestry. And I have to say, I owned an exhibition just recently here of embroidery at, uh, at the Irma Stern Museum. It's called Threads of Gold. And I was reminded of the Kais Karma Tapestry all over again. Not that they're necessarily akin, but there's something about women in embroidery that just just presses the buttons. So we've got Dr. Carol Hoffmeyer on the line. Hi, Carol. Hello. Congratulations. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I, I think I should be really saying congratulations once again, because you have, been, you have been much awarded, but I think each and every time it's well-deserved. Carol, I feel that you and I have spoken about this before, but can we let's start at the beginning? Why and how did you come to be working in the Eastern Cape in the first place and founding the Kais Karma Trust? Um, like many things, I think, that are really important, we don't always know a rational reason. Um, my husband and I moved to the Eastern Cape in 2000, and we'd heard of a village called Hamburg, mainly for its natural beauty. And then once we got there, I was confronted with the despair and the poverty of the people that were living there, having been battered and having been battered and um and, and sort of hurt by um, 
apartheid by after apartheid when Siskai was incorporated and not really having understanding where they fit into the big picture of South Africa. So having seen all this, you thought, what difference can I make? And then, yes, and I had been working in embroidery projects before, part of the paper prayers and HIV campaigns in Johannesburg and the rest of South Africa. So my natural idea was to see if the women could get an income because the women seem are the stalwarts of the household and feed the children. And if we could teach them embroidery, they could get an income and then at least feed and pay school fees for their children. So that was the gift you came bearing. Embroidery came into your life how? I don't know. I'm a very, very bad embroiderer, and nowadays <laughs> nobody, none of our embroiderers let me touch their work, even to show, to demonstrate how to do a stitch. But uh, when I was working on the paper prayers, we were supposed to be doing printmaking, and I travelled a lot around South Africa rural communities and saw how many women were really good at embroidery, and how sewing together made a camaraderie between women where they could bond with other women, talk about their problems at home and bring them together and yet make something beautiful that they could be proud of. So I think that's why it, that's why it appealed to me. And they could take it home and so while they watched their children mm. and did other things that women need to do. Yes, and they have been doing that throughout the centuries. You know, the lace yeah. makers, the quilters, it's, it's extraordinary and it's amazing how it goes on and carries with it the same sort of thing. So your, your personal gift then was not necessarily embroidery uh, because you knew how to do it, but it was something that you could see that worked. W- what is your gift, Carol? What your doctor, Carol Hoffmeyer, what are you trained in? I... I think my gift is to to notice what other people are good at and get them to do it. Um, My own art is quite mediocre, but when I work with a group of artists um, uh, in a team, we seem to be able to produce things that are way better than any of the the individuals that, that are part of that team. So I think that's my gift, to hold people together and enthuse them to make something bigger than they could imagine. Because they work as a group. Yes, I suppose embroidery brings women together and music brings people together. I'm just seeing that uh, you were also honoured alongside of you by Rhodes University was also Wusi Maflasela, who received a Doctorate of Law honours. So nice that you were both uh, awarded there. But coming back to your, you know, you coming to Hamburg, seeing, witnessing this despair and poverty, it's one thing to witness it, it's another thing to have an idea, and then implementing it is not always necessarily so easy. How did you start, and how did you get the people to believe in um, what you were suggesting? I think that when I look back, it was almost as if I... People use the word inspired or taken hold of and made to do something because it seemed to come from without the the urge and the passion because it's very hard. You're right. But in those early years, I had a a driving force that surprised even me to keep going. Um, I had one aim that we would make something beautiful because um, to something beautiful that that stood up against all the suffering and harshness of people's lives and that um, stood in contrast to that and, and gave, said, made people proud that they made it. And, and, and I, I was just driven by that. 
Was that the, was uh, that the tapestry? Was that the Kaiskama tapestry? The first was the Kaiskama tapestry, and then we made the Kaiskama altarpiece in the same way. And in some ways, that was the most remarkable because that dealt with the AIDS epidemic and gave women and men a sense that they weren't alone, that generations of people, as you've said, have done embroidery, have done sewing, but generations of people have, have suffered from illness and have found ways of looking at it and coping with it. So it was always to make connections and to to show people that they belonged as human beings in the in the world and had a part and were significant, I think, and were important. And they were able to tell their story through the uh, through the Kaiskama tapestry. And I was mentioning earlier there that recently there's a, well, it's on presently, an exhibition called Threads of Gold at the Irma Stern Museum. It's done by a lady called Penny Cornell. And she was telling me, and this is the reason that I made the connection, was that she used to live in France and she used to live around the corner from the Bayer tapestry. So she was able to sort of pop in quite often. And that was such a wonderful privilege, I think, the, the Kaiskama tapestry is one of those things that um, one would be privileged to see. I mean, I've got a little booklet that tells you all about it, but is it somewhere in one place where people can come and visit and yes. pay respect? Yes, the Kaiskama tapestry, which is very proud, has been for some years now in the Parliament. It, it's so lo- long, it's 120 metres long, and it wraps around the legislature, telling the story of the frontier of the Eastern Cape um, right through to the first election of Nelson Mandela and you can walk right around and read the story in a similar way to the tapestry in Bayer where people can see the, con- the Norman conquest of England and follow the story sequentially across and we use that tapestry to uh, the Bayer tapestry to say yes people have always been conquered people, the stories, the stories what important and how you perceive it and what your attitude is afterwards. Um, and and so we're very proud that it's still... You, I think you you need an appointment to see it, but yeah. anybody can go in and see it yeah. in Cape Town in Parliament. They can go and see that in Parliament, but um, they've been, I'm amazed that you actually undertook to do more after that because it took many years to produce it, I think, didn't it? It didn't, actually, because we we employ a lot of women. Um, So we had 120 women, and Mm. if you can imagine those women working every day. So from when we conceived of the idea, it took about eight months to make it. That was not so long at all. Very, very fast. And also I want to mention, if Adele Cutton is coming on later. All the wool in that tapestry came from down the road where Adele dyes and spins wool. So we, she made all the wool for that tapestry. Well, she is indeed. In fact, she's going to follow your interview, so we'll be able to <laughs> remind her of that. I'm sure she certainly hasn't forgotten. Um, how interesting. So did you use, that was the wool, the, the actual wool that you used to do the embroidery? Sorry, uh, the, can actual, you repeat that? the actual wool that you used to do the embroidery was from Adele. Yes, okay. all, all the wool, and it was hand dyed by Adele and her team. Gosh, what yeah. a huge job! So, given that it didn't take that long, then I suppose it was just a matter of rolling up your sleeve and starting another project because there was the, the very wonderful altarpiece. Uh, yes, in fact, yes, yeah. Memorable. What happened in between the end of that tapestry and the beginning of the Kaskama altarpiece was that we started to see, really see the effects of the AIDS epidemic. And um, I, 
the one strong uh, belief in me is that making art makes gives meaning. And I had long known about another an altarpiece, the Grunewald altarpiece, which was made in the early Renaissance and talks of illness and suffering and redemption. So we used that as the prototype, and we talked back about incurable illnesses and the plague long ago, what it meant that we were now in the midst of another plague, and what people did then and what we can do now to um, overcome the effects of it, at least within ourselves, because we had no ALVs then, Mm. if not to make people physically better, at least make them able to cope with what was happening to them. Isn't it extraordinary how out of, out of illness and suffering come these beautiful things, you know, throughout history and again now. Um, we could be talking about the embroidery and the work that you do for a long time because there have been many. There's been the African Ganika, there's the, the Rhodes University tapestry. But the point being, the point of, of talking to you now was on account of the award that you've, you've been given for the difference you've made in the lives of so many people, going back to the illness and the suffering, the poverty and despair, do you feel that it's making a big impact, the work that you're doing? I do feel that it's made an impact, and I'm, I'm surprised also, because I, I, I never imagined, I never set out to do development or to do anything like that, but I set out with a belief that making something beautiful changes people and gives people a sense of um, who they are, who they can be. And learning skill does that um, because I, I never wanted to start a business in that sense. And I think it has done that in several ways, a major way by bringing women together to form a very strong group that supports each other. As, as, you, as we said earlier, as they sit and sew, they've got lots of time to talk, to look after each other's children, to know uh, about home lives and abuse that happens to other women and to support them. Um, and then just the pride in the fact that they can do it and other people take notice and they're not just stuck away in some little rural village yeah. where nobody sees them. Carol, these are the sort of soft emotional aspects that you're drawing attention to, but you know what the project has also done is put food on the table, it's put the place on the map, it's, it's, it's shone a big light in a place where there was no light. Has it made, you know, one day you might not be there anymore. Is it sort of making a difference for the generations of women who are going to be able to take this on as a business throughout time? I see. I think it will, and uh, what what we're most proud of, that, and I was just working it out uh, the day before yesterday, we have probably consistently employed in the art project alone, that's not in our health or education programs, which were branched out of our health program, about 100 women a month are in piecework for over 12 years, which I think it must have made a difference to all those families. And when you speak to the women, they see it as a milestone when Kaskama started in their lives. They talk up till then, and then after that, okay, then we had work, then we could travel, then we... uh, um, So I think it has made a, a huge concrete difference. 
I suspect it more than has. Once again, it's been super to have a chat, Carol, and I know that the project does all sorts of things, as you say, it's health and education, but they're also making smaller craft items and all sorts of bits and pieces. So I'm going to give out the website if anybody would like to have a look and see more of uh, the sort of work that you're doing there. That would be the thing to do. Carol Hoffmeyer, congratulations. Lovely. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Dr. Carol Hoffmeyer, founder of the Kais Karma Trust. Well, if you don't know about it, do check it out www.kaiskarma that's k-e-i-s-k-a-m-m-a dot org and we will put it up on our Facebook page kaiskarma.org Mahala airtime is back bigger and better hello caller how can I win 50% free airtime I've got skills eh uh-huh. I can rock climb without a harness yeah, hit a hole in once my eyes closed oh. I can even walk backwards Whoa, up and with... my friend you are a winner already just by being with MTN all you have to do is recharge to get 50% Mahala airtime every day at any time to make free MTN to MTN calls send SMSs and use the internet sweet but now that's bigger and better Mahala for you conditions apply minimum recharge value is 10 rand Are you a lover of the finer things in life? Do you have a passion for music, visual art, theatre, cinema, literature and good food? Then Classic Feel magazine is essential reading for you. Published monthly, Classic Feel is South Africa's number one arts, culture and lifestyle magazine. Get the latest issue of Classic Feel magazine now at selected newsagents and bookshops. Find out more at www.classicfeel.co.za. SAFM interacts on every level. Visit our website at safm.co.za. Follow us on Twitter at SAFM Radio or simply like our Facebook page, SAFM Radio. Let's have the conversation. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Uh, with me, Nancy Richards, also with you. And if you'd like to join us, you're welcome. Otherwise, at safm.co.za or 0891104207 if you want to give us a call. Well, next we have a lady who we've already mentioned uh, right here on the show. She's Adele Cutton. She's the owner of Adele Mohair. They're also in the Eastern Cape. And they're a production company that seemed to to be thriving, despite the fact that all around the textile industry is battling. In fact, as proof, we find Adele at the airport because I think she's just come back from Europe. But we got her on the line. <laughs> Hi, Adele. Yeah, anything. Okay, we'll wait until flight number whatever it is has finally come in. Okay, well, let me tell you a little bit more about Adele while we're waiting for SAA or BA or whoever it is is uh, sorting themselves out. Adele Cutton, she's the owner and founder of Adele Mohair. Can you hear me, Adele? Yes, I can. Uh, Thank there you. We go. Okay, we'll try and quickly get in before the next announcement. Um, Adele, we were just chatting about you with uh, Dr. Carol Hoffman, and she was telling us that it was Adele Mohair that actually hand-dyed all the wools for the Kaiskama tapestry. So lovely, how super that you were involved there. But, yes, um, I've been very privileged. <laughs> now, what do you do at Adele Mohair? Do you, um, do you produce the, the wool itself? Do you get the wool in from farmers? Tell us about your business. Well, what we do is we buy in um, a lot of mohair that's already been pre-spun, and then we do the hand dyeing ourselves, and then we make go on to make a lot of handmade yarns as well. So we have two sections to the business: a sort of yarn side to it, and then we also um, knit on hand-operated machines um, finished garments. So we make shawls and blankets. We do all the trims by hand. We do all the brushing of the mohair to make it fluffy by hand, and we try to make 
create as many jobs as we possibly can in the entire process. Okay. Are you keeping the wool farmers happy? I'm not sure how much wool you're actually getting, <laughs> taking from them, but are you making a dent in their lives too? I, I would sincerely love to be able to, but unfortunately I don't think we really are. I think we use only about five tons a year of wool and mohair, but it's come a long way from the 120 kilos I used to use <laughs> many, many years ago. Mm. Um, so, yes, I, South Africa exports a huge amount and beneficiate very little. So we're desperately trying to grow the business all round, you know, not just myself, but lots of other people too seems like it's doing pretty well, despite, you know, the difficult uh, straightened circumstances that everybody finds themselves in, especially the textile industry. You've just come back from Europe. Are you exporting a lot of your product? Yes, I do. Um, more than 50%. We send to about 20 countries in the world. In fact, we probably, you know, send much more than we sell locally. Kind of figures. I mean, as a, as a sort of uh, Southern Hemisphere country, we're not likely to be so much in need of warm woolly clothing. Well, having said that, it's not pretty cold in many parts of the country. But the sort of things that you produce for the international market, is it similar to what you're producing locally? Are we all buying the same sort of thing? Pretty much, except that obviously we, we sell a lot of throws um, in, in Europe, you know, People sit outside with a, a nice big woolly blanket over them or a nice fluffy mohair blanket because after all living out overseas is quite difficult. Um, but uh, um, scarves and shawls, pretty much the same. Just generally the size, we make very, very large um, shawls and things for the French market. Hmm. Uh, they seem to like all the oversized things. I'm not sure if you can hear me though. <laughs> I certainly can, but I imagine you're battling. The, um, you know, you say that you've got a lot of uh, knitters, they're brushing up, the, um, brushing up the yarns as well to make them nice and fluffy. How many people do you employ on a permanent basis? And do you sort of... Are there 45 of us on a permanent basis. Okay. And then we have um, various people that work from home, just depending on the orders coming through. And then this, from this time of year onwards, we start employing a few extras so that we can complete the orders. Because of course, now starts the busy time for Europe when we do the production for the overseas market for their winter. You know, when I was listening to Carol... Shame, Adele. <laughs> That's okay. Don't worry, don't worry. I've just got one last question. When we were, when we were talking to Adele, she was talking fondly about how you had made, uh, dyed all the wools for the Kaiskama tapestry I'd love to think that they're all natural dyes, but is that the case? Sorry, Nancy, I, okay. I cannot hear a thing. I'm trying to get away from the speaker, and I can't hear a thing. Yeah. I don't know what you said to me. I'm so sorry. Don't worry, don't worry. Okay, okay I'll now quickly. I can hear you. <laughs> okay. um, the hand-dyed yarns that you, that you do, I'd love to think that they're all natural dyes, but it's not necessarily the case. No, unfortunately not. Mm. Um, the natural dyes, you can't repeat the color. The color is not color fast and varies from season to season. And then the length of time taken to make them is so long that it, it, it's actually not financially practical. But it is where I started, um, but I've had to move on and, and, and be more practical and, and use the commercial dyes. Mohair, um, from sheep? From goats? No, from goats. Okay. Mohair is from goats and the wool is from sheep. 
Okay. Are they are they um, a very tolerant breed? I mean, they're not threatened in any way, are they? Other than the fact that perhaps people are not using mohair as much as they used to. Um, no, they're not really. They're difficult to breed and they're diffi- difficult to raise. They're quite um, picky about um, situations. But um, so farmers do find them difficult to raise. But um, apart from that, not, there's not really a problem. There's a, um, quite an increasing demand for mohair. Uh, mohair South Africa have created quite a nice demand through their marketing programs. But um, I think it's... It's becoming expensive. It's becoming a sought-after fibre, and we're just sort of in the market at the right time yeah. at the moment. Yeah, sort of a luxury level. Just lastly, on the end products, can you make up to order? Oh yes, we do. That we we make to order entirely. We don't we don't carry stock because every customer wants something different, okay. and we make entirely to order, and which also gives us a new and unique little spot in the market right. because we can create for the customer. So if somebody wants something absolutely exquisite mohair for their single loved one, can you make up one item or do you only make in bulk? Um, we can. Um, it becomes a little more pricey when yeah. you do one. So it is easier to do a few extras. But we, haven't, we have done it in the past and uh, we can do it again if we, you know, if we ask. Well, let me give out your website and let's see what happens. Adele, very best of luck. Thanks for battling through the sound. Thank you very much. Take care. Cheers. Adele Cutton, she's the owner of Adele Mohair. I hope you could hear her. Let me give out her website in case you would like to get yourself something absolutely fabulous in mohair. It's uh, Adele Mohair, A-D-E-L-E, mohair.co.za, adelmohair.co.za. It's 1.30, it's news headlines time with already. Thank you, now. Thanks very much. And right now you're listening to Otherwise Talking Women and Talking Women of the Eastern Cape we are right now. In a minute we're going to be talking to uh, an occupational therapist and she's working at a school called Vukohambe and it's just outside of East London and they have some very uh, creative ways of teaching there. going to be chatting to her in just a minute. She is Annie Scott-Jones. But before that, we have on the line Pamela Timakwe. She is the founder of the Eastern Cape Women's Magazine, which completely spells out exactly what they do. Got her on the line. Hi, Pamela. Hello. Nice to have you with us. Now, how are you? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. And I was going to ask you why you started this magazine, but I see that you are a former journalist, and in fact, you're a former DJ. But was it was it to sort of use your own talents that you decided to start this magazine? Uh, thank you very much for allowing us um, to be um, viewed in SAFM. I initiated uh, the Eastern Cape Women's Magazine with the passion of uh, articulating uh, the, the stories of women in the rural areas up on this alloy corner. And um, really, I was the former UCR presenter uh, hosting Izilama uh, Kosikazi, the voice of women. Mm-hmm. It is where I identified that in our areas, in our rural areas, there's so much that needs to be unpacked. Uh, especially on the women's issues. Hence, I decided to initiate a magazine that will, that will unfold the work done by women in the Eastern Cape. How long has it been going? Um, it was officially launched in 2007 uh, in, in Tata. Then I initiated it in 2003 
then 2003, I was still working at uh, Unita Community Radio doing the program Easy Lama Kostasi. 2003-2004, I was conducting my research on on the on the on the on the on the um, uh, 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 magazine site. Okay, so it must have been quite a thing to start it. It's one thing to, I mean, as we know only too well, to have a radio station. There's a lot of material out there, but to actually get the stories, take the photographs, put the magazine together, a whole different ball game. Okay. Tell us about the stories of the women that you found. How how often does the magazine come out? How many stories are you looking for? Okay. Um, we are unpacked. We, actually, we developed a team, and then we unpacked a team into 34. It's a bi-monthly magazine. Okay. Uh, uh, it's bilingual. It's Kosa and English. Then what we do, we, we, we develop a team. Then we unpack a team into 38 pages where we go out and find out who is doing what. For instance, if I can make if I can, I can make you an example. Mm. Uh, as we speak, I am in the rural of Enobo, uh, in a place called Guatatukati. There were women who are not educated during the apartheid regime who were helping the comrades. Uh, who are who, who are departing to uh, Israel, Germany, Zimbabwe, and Zambia? Those women are at Nobo, and they are starving there. They've got a story to tell. I am meeting them now. So uh, it's a, it is in the part of the heritage because we will be covering um, uh, July and uh, 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 September uh, and September issue, mm. and also we will be uh, demystifying uh, the, 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 the the different cultures. That is the culture of Abatembo, Basemakoseni, and also within the the, the trans guy, Abafazibakapaka. They are role in educating a girl child and also our icon Mandela. So I will be meeting those women again. Then we will document that. But I do have my colleagues, people that I am working with, supported by media development and diversity agency, who assist me in documenting and taking pictures. Okay. For a lot of these women, it sounds to me like it p- perhaps would be the first time they've had an opportunity to tell their story and have somebody not just listen to it, but write it down. Come again? Is it for some of the women the first time they've had an opportunity to tell their story and have somebody write it down? Uh, although I, I, I don't hear you clear, okay. I'm, I'm on the road, but... Um, uh, what happened is this, we go to these women, uh, uh, we listen to their stories, uh, some they are exciting, other stories are not, uh, and what I've noticed is this, because and Mtuana was an Eastern Cape and later now in terms of the language, in terms of the the, 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 the cultural beliefs and norms. Can you can you hear me? I know you're battling Pamela, but I just want to ask you lastly, 
Who is reading this magazine? Because one would like to think that it would make a difference to the women's lives that they've got the stories out there and that their their plight can be heard. Who is reading the magazine? Uh, people who read our magazine are people from the Eastern Cape because it is a provincial magazine. Also, the magazine is written, as, as I've told you, that it is written into two languages, Iskosa and English. So we've got uh, 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 people who are living in the Eastern Cape who are white, then they do uh, read the magazine. And people from the Eastern Cape, Abang Fundanga, they, uh, they can be able to read the magazine in their vernacular. So those are our uh, uh, people who read the magazine. Okay. I've got your website here. Can people read the magazine online as well? We are still working on that. Okay. Not yet. I cannot promise, but soon, very soon, they will be able to access the magazine on the Internet. Okay. In the meantime, can I give out your cell number if anybody would like to know more? Yes, please. Okay. Uh, my cell number is 079-064-6521. Okay. Let me do that. Pamela, well done. Good luck. It. We'd love to see the magazine. Um, I think Hazel's probably going to give you a ring and see how we can get hold of a, of a copy, maybe a back copy. Good luck with your work. Thank you. Take care. Pamela Timakwe, and she is the founder of the Eastern Cape Women's Magazine. Gosh, what a, what a wonderful thing to do. And so many stories as yet unheard, certainly uh, perhaps not untold, but very seldom are they put together. You know, women in the rural areas just don't always get their voices heard. If you'd like to know more, uh, Pamela's number is 079-064-6521, The website is actually www.ecwm.co.za, ecwm.co.za, but I'm not so sure that it's up and running yet. They are, however, at the Walter Sisulu University, just FYI. Right, you're listening to Otherwise. Stay with us. Can I ask you one question before you go? Depend on what the question is. You won't think me less of a man if I ask? I might. I've been needing a woman perspective on this. Do you think I should shave my moustache? Yes. I was just saying to myself just then, he looks so damn ugly with that moustache. Really? No. Thought you was going to ask me something more important than that. That's important. My physical appearance is important to the people. Well, have you asked your wife? No. The Mountaintop. Martin Luther King Jr. as you've never seen him before. Directed by Waruna Siani and starring Sin Losobotani and Mwenya Kabwe. On at the Market Theatre from the 12th of June until the 21st of July. Book at CompuTickets or go to www.markettheatre.co.za in partnership with SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Otherwise, it is uh, talking about women in the Eastern Cape. And don't forget, if you would like to f- us to focus on your area, why don't you let us know? Send us an email. We're at otherwise at safm.co.za. We'll find us on Facebook. It's otherwise on SAFM. We'll focus still very much on the Eastern Cape. And then uh, what we're going to hear about just now is a, a school called Vukohambe. It's just outside of East London. And we had an email a little while ago telling us all about it from Annie Scott-Jones. 
Annie herself is an occupational therapist there at the school, and actually what she really wanted to know was um, about an organisation where they recycled cell phones to needy people. In fact, it wasn't on our programme, not as far as I remember anyway, but we thought uh, after she told us the whole story about what they were doing at Vukahambe, we thought it would be quite nice to get her on the line, have a chat to her, and see if anybody else knows about the, uh, the recycled cell phones. So we got her on the line to tell us all. Hi, Annie. Hi, Nancy. Thanks for inviting me to chat to you. Well, it's a pleasure. Yeah. I mean, we, we read through your email and thought, oh, that's very interesting. Sad <laughs> we weren't able to help you with the cell phone recycling business. Yes. Did you ever get to the bottom of that? No, not yet. No, okay. I would be keen if someone does know something for me. Let, 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 let's spell it out. What was it that you actually heard and what were you hoping for? Well, um, I had heard, uh, I thought I'd heard it on your program, but obviously it wasn't, of a group in Cape Town. Um, who've started recycling cell phones, and I think they, from what I can remember, they break the phone into the, its component parts, and then I don't know if they send it off. And anyway, they they're making a living from from dissembling cell phones, and I thought that was a fantastic way to to gain some sort of employment for people. Okay, so they were dissembling; they weren't putting them together again. No, I don't think so. Oh, okay, no. I think okay. it was it was uh, sort of. Uh, getting the the component pieces, which could then get get earn an income. Yes. Well, if anybody knows anything more about that, do let us know. I know that there are a couple of places. Well, in fact, I think it's Vodacom where you can take your old cell phone and um, they will recycle it so that all those parts don't go into and, and you know create havoc in yes. landfills. I think yes. that, that that's certainly something that happened. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, we didn't get you on the phone to talk about <laughs> cell phones, but thank you very yeah. much. It was a good start. Good. So, Vukohambe, I think you've been there for for a little while. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, it's a um, it's a school for physically physically challenged children. There are 168 children, ranging from the age of six to about 20, um, 20 years old, and um, it's a school just outside East London, in in the suburb of Mtanzani and when we, we a friend of my a friend and myself a physio Michelle Perks and myself were made aware of this school and about two years ago and we've been trying to get employed at the school and eventually we were feeling so desperate for the children who have terribly neglected because there's no therapists there um, we started volunteering at the beginning of this year and that's how we started working there and um, but they're just two of us with all these children and we feeling quite well sometimes you feel quite overwhelmed but it's a, an awesome challenge and we're loving it so Vukohamba apparently means get up and go go and walk so that's something like that that's yes, exactly yes. what you did yes yeah so when you say that there are no therapists there they are able to teach the children what I mean are they just caring for them or are they uh, teaching them academic subjects as well yeah, the children at the school are theoretically, intellectually um, normal. They've got an average IQ. And um, so that the curriculum is a normal curriculum, which is what the teachers are following. Mm. But there are a huge number of problems, and, and the teachers really do need therapy support. For example, many of them have got very poor hand function. Many of the children have got poor hand function. Many of them are unable to speak, children with cerebral palsy who can't talk or express themselves. And these children need particular and specialized intervention um, So, in, in order for them to learn and in order for them to achieve anything.
Yes, and those are just two sort of setbacks, and I can mm. imagine there would be many more. And if you've got a class full um, exactly. of children with all sorts of different uh, problems, it would be quite difficult. How have they been managing? Um, I think they just have been managing. I think it's been very difficult for the teachers. I think mm. it's, it's, a, it's a huge job for them. Are they specialist teachers in terms no, of... No, no, they're not. They, they sort of, they come to the school and they kind of get in-house training, as it were. Mm. But they, I don't think many of them have had much specialised help or training. So you and your friend came in with a, with a sort of the creative aspect. Just explain that. <laughs> well, we came in trying to just help the children to get uh, correctly seated in wheelchairs, correctly seated at the at the desks where they're working, um, basic basic support to start with. Um, we need to help the pre-primary teacher to, uh, you know, so many of these children need to be changing positions every two hours, so they need to be standing and and sitting and lying. And and um, when we got there, completely, you know, as one would expect, they are sit they sit all day. They sit in their wheelchairs and they sit whatever. And so we just came in really at the very baseline, offering the most basic support that a, a disabled child needs. Um, but from there, that's when I became, we're becoming more and more aware that, I mean, you know, we're unearthing problems all the time, but, but we're becoming aware that the older children, the senior learners, are actually really needing some sort of vocational training and some sort of help so that they, when they leave school, there's some hope and purpose and, and some, uh, somewhere for them to go, some, something mm. for them to do in yeah. the end. Just coming back to your intellectually, vertical as normal, um, quite difficult for them to get very humble training when they've got very good brains. Exactly, mm. yeah. Mm. You also mentioned that, you know, first to get the, the children correctly seated in a wheelchair at a desk. What, what is the correct way of seating somebody in a wheelchair at a desk? and In what way uh, is it going wrong? Um, well, firstly, you've got to have a, a good prescription. A good, um, you've got to analyze the child's problems and then correctly prescribe the wheelchair that they need to be given. So you can't just, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of approach, um, which unfortunately has in the past often been done. But um, we've been very fortunate to have um, some very good seating was done before us. They managed to get a company called CE Mobility to help them. And they, so many of the children have got wonderful wheelchairs. But it's, a, it's an ongoing process. The child outgrows the chair or they're sliding out the chair or the the lap strap needs tightening or the foot plate needs to be adjusted. Everything needs to be changed to suit the particular child. So that's an ongoing process. Yeah. Yes, and I'm just thinking, I don't know how many, how many children of the 168-odd are in wheelchairs, but it, it sounds like a sort of cacophony of people moving around in wheelchairs. Is, it, is, there, a lot of, is there a lot of room for them to move around? Um, it's a fairly spacious school. The school is um, built for this built in 1979, in fact, by a Dutch Reformed Church. And um, it's, it's fairly spacious. Um, and I suppose about a third of the children are in wheelchairs, and then there's probably a third with some sort of other device, and then a third don't need walkers at all or help to walk. Um, but, yes, no, it is. It's, it's, 
<laughs> it can be very interesting. We have like an army of wheelchairs parked in our yeah. therapy room sometimes. Yeah, gosh. Yeah. As an occupational therapist and your friends are physiotherapists, yes. you know, I'm thinking what sort of physical education, what sort of physical um, recreation do the kids have? Are you, are you able to do anything with them altogether so they're not just sitting there all day long? Um, well, as a group, not really. We, don't, uh, we do see groups of children. So they come through us or we help the teachers facilitate stuff. But apparently that they do do sport. So apparently they do net, um, basketball after school. And they have been known to do golf. I think they do the golf for the disabled, which would be awesome to see. We, I think um, at the moment things are a little bit on hold. There are a few hiccups happening at the changeover with, of headmasters and some other issues that are happening. So I haven't, we haven't witnessed much sport, but I think there is, that is on the, on the cards. Yeah. You and Michelle, have, you started off as volunteers. Are you now uh, employed or are you still um, volunteering? Not yet. We are, um, at the moment, we've just been given the go-ahead to, to employ for, for therapists to be employed. And in fact, there are eight therapy posts. Hmm. And um, so we're actually hoping that we're going to get lots of therapists so we can have an army of therapists to tackle the army of wheelchairs. Yeah, well, that sounds like it would be really good. And, I mean, it's going to be exciting. It, mm. it, very exciting. And uh, just coming back to the cell phone story, which is really where we came in, I, I got the wrong end of the stick. So what you're looking at is some sort of work that the, that the school could actually do to, to get the, you know, the graduates soon coming out of school yeah. to, to learn some sort of skills. Exactly, yeah. Um, parallel to the academic um, syllabus that they're doing, I really do believe they need some skills development training. Yeah. yeah, yeah so nice. that will be... And, and there are quite a few children who've slipped through the, the radar, so to speak, and, and they are intellectually challenged. Yeah. And they really do need um, different sort of... Uh, work set yeah. for them. Yeah, I can, I can yeah. imagine. Yeah. Is there, I, we talked about creativity, is there, is there joy and laughter as well, Annie? Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we, yeah, certainly, we just love it. And, uh, sorry, as therapists, we're having lots of fun. And I think we try, and, yeah, there is lots of laughter. The kids are wonderful. Uh, I, you you look at what their disabilities and you think, how can you still be smiling? How are you just still enjoying life? And and they do. They are wonderful children to work with, and they so um, they love anything that any activities that are going and anything that's happening. They get fully engaged and and throw themselves into it. Well, I can hear you so, loving yeah. it too. Annie Scott-Jones, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, Sorry we weren't help, able to help with the phones, but who knows, if anybody would like to let us know, they can do it. Otherwise, at safm.co.za. Annie Scott-Jones, thank you. Take care. Annie is an occupational therapist at Vuko Hambe School. It's just outside East London. If you'd like to know more, 043-735-2864. Listening to Otherwise, next up, it's Shop Shop, the children's programme.